So today we find ourselves picking up our study, our verse-by-verse study in the book of Romans. Uh, And I have, pretty much every time we've come back to the study in Romans, talked about how absolutely breathtaking and rich in scope that this study is. And I think it is so important for Christians to spend time, a good season, a good amount of time, reading, rereading, considering deeply what, what is being spoken of here in the book of Romans. And so you might even get a pen ready and, uh, and, and be ready to jot notes down in your margins or underline passages. Maybe you've got a, a notebook. I have a notebook that I uh, keep handy for lots of things, but not the least of which is when I come to a passage that I really want to spend time thinking about, uh, meditating on, chewing on, you know, over and over and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, I always feel like I have to explain when I say meditate. I don't mean, you know, this sort of weird ohm thing. I'm talking about filling our minds with the truth of God and spending time mulling it over, chewing on it over and over again so we can get all that we can out of it. So that being said, maybe you have a pen ready. Uh, It's always a great idea to have your coffee ready to go. I find coffee to be an invaluable study study aid. But that being said, so we're going to go ahead and uh, jump back into Romans here. And we've gotten as far as verse 4 in chapter 8. And we're going to really spend time looking at verses 5 and maybe getting through verse 11 today. We'll see how it goes. But I'm actually going to start by looking at the very tail end of verse 3 through verse 4 to start us off and just kind of you know connect here a little bit with where we left off last time. So in the end of verse 3, uh, Paul writes, He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so um, you might recall uh, a couple of studies back when we were in uh, chapter 7 of Romans, and uh, Paul drew this analogy about the law and grace and sort of likened them to the idea of marriage partners. And he made the case that you can't be married to two spouses. You have to be married to one. And it's adultery if you're married to two. In other words, it's completely wrong to be married to two spouses. He builds on this idea, and he likens it again to the law and grace. And he says, look, when when Christ came and fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law, the law, like a marriage partner, in this analogy, and remember, all analogies eventually break down, but, uh, but in this analogy, it's as though the first wife passed away, and now you're free to marry the new wife. And the new wife in this analogy is, of course, the idea of grace. Now, we have uh, often said many times in the past, and no doubt I'll say many times again in the future, but Galatians, which is kind of like a mini version of Romans in some respects, certainly when it comes to this particular uh, analogy and even also um, um, just this, this point, is that the law had a purpose that was accomplished ultimately in Christ. In chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul speaks about how the law served as a schoolmaster or somebody who would keep us walking in a straight line between the lines, ultimately leading us to uh, Christ. And But once, uh, once Christ has come, now there's no longer a need for a schoolmaster. Now, that doesn't mean that the law isn't still remaining this, this beautiful, lofty expression of the holiness of God. Uh, Paul makes that case richly in the book of Romans. But he also says that in, uh, in, in, even with all of its beauty and loftiness and holiness, and he sees it as such a beautiful and good thing, but he says it's actually like a death sentence for me. And the, the problem is not the law. The problem is with me. I can't keep it. 
And of course, no one's ever been able to keep it. That's why Paul would say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so therefore, there's, there's no hope of us achieving righteousness through our obedience to the law. Therefore, the law doesn't, in fact, save us. Instead, it actually kills us. Uh, and so this is why our understanding of grace is so vital. Now, this is where some people uh, get a little hung up uh, in thinking that the Old Testament people were saved by obedience to the law. Not really so. Paul makes a case that actually is made in the Old Testament, but he brings it forth in the New Testament when he talks about how the just shall live by faith. Uh, two and maybe three times, depending on if Paul wrote the book of, uh, of Hebrews, but in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, we see this uh, connection to this idea of the just living by faith. And that connects with Habakkuk in the Old Testament. And we've made the case often that, in fact, no one has ever been saved by the law. In fact, the law has only always been like a death sentence for everybody. Whether it's the animal skins covering Adam and Eve in the garden, whether it's Abraham being justified by his faith, he believed God and he was, his, his faith was counted as righteousness, um, and, and, and so on, as we see it, whether it's Isaiah 56 and the idea that um, that God is calling people, Jews and Gentiles, ultimately all into uh, to come and to follow and that kind of thing. But it's all ultimately rooted and based upon the idea of faith, not not through our obedience to the law. Does that mean we shouldn't walk in obedience to God? Does that mean we shouldn't consider uh, the righteous standards that the law sets? Of course we should. As a matter of fact, grace suddenly now changes us from the inside out where, again, we don't keep the law perfectly, and it's not the standard by which we are saved or unsaved. But it does help us to understand what it means to to please God and to walk with him. And so the law still serves a purpose in that regard, but it's never actually served the purpose of saving anybody. And this is something that the scripture makes clear from cover to cover. And so that being said, since we have no longer we are no longer married to the old spouse, we are now free to marry the new spouse, and we come by faith and put our trust in Christ. And that becomes really where what we're what we're kind of starting off with here in the passage we're looking at. Again, this is so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That does not mean we do not still commit sin. What it means is, is that we are no longer married to the old spouse, but we are now married to the new one. And so this is ultimately accomplished for us through the finished work of Christ, who now makes it possible for us to move from one now to the other. And so uh, in verse 5, he goes on, and uh, well, of course, at the end of verse 4, I I don't want to make it sound as though there isn't still some difference between the idea of, practically speaking, walking according to the flesh or walking in the spirit, because Paul actually uses this idea to trans, uh, uses that 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 terminology now to to move into what the outward expression of this inward relationship does in fact look like. Okay, so verse five: For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. Now that is just a simple, true statement. Those who are of the flesh are just concerned with the things of the flesh. They don't have the higher sense of what it means to walk with God. They are not concerned with pleasing God necessarily. They might not have some sense of guilt, but they don't really have this desire to walk with him. They don't have this desire to know him, to walk in holiness and such. However, those who are spiritually minded do. This is something not that we have worked up uh, ourselves to, and this is important because this is generally how the world would see righteousness. Oh, well, you're just holier than thou. 
you know, in the sense that that term is used, no, of course not. You know, uh, hopefully not, right? Hopefully our attitudes is not one of, of, of spiritual arrogance. But are we in fact set apart in a way that a non-believer is not? Yes, we are. And in that very different sense, we are holier in that sense. The idea that we have been set apart by the Holy Spirit. We have been set apart to God, whereas an unbeliever has not. Again, that doesn't that should never make us spiritually arrogant, but positionally speaking, it does put us in a different place entirely. And one of the evidences of the fact that we are in that place is that we do think spiritually. We are spiritually minded. We are minded of the things of God in a way that unbelievers are not. And so this becomes the beginning of a description of the of the difference now between somebody who is saved and somebody who is not. Uh, verse 6, for to be carnally minded or minded according to the flesh, fleshly minded, is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. To be fleshly minded is death. It's the only thing it can be. Uh, as Paul has said, in our flesh, we have no ability to please God. We can't keep the law. Even if we, we, we felt like we were keeping the law, the truth is in our flesh, we can't. It's impossible. And so therefore, it only leads to death. And this is where unbelievers live. They don't have any other nature to help them walk according to the ways of God. They at best might try out of a sense of guilt or, uh, or something like that, but they don't have the actual ability to please God and to walk with him because they're not of the Spirit. They're not born again. However, those who are spiritually minded, these are those who, as he says here again, are spiritually minded, and, they bring, and that brings with it life and peace. Now, again, to be spiritually minded or to be of the Spirit means to be born again in this context we're talking about here. The idea that we now belong to the Lord, we are set apart for Him, and that brings life. No longer are we in the world, are we of the world. We might be in it, but we're not of it anymore, even as Jesus said in John 17. Instead, now we are of the kingdom of God. That is our new citizenship, Philippians 3.20. This is what we are, not just what we do. It's what we are. This is fundamental. Uh, it's, it's important for us to understand the fun, fundamental level of this. It's not about some people act holier than others and therefore they are righteous. No, instead they are made righteous by faith in Christ and now they begin to live in a way that reflects holiness, in a way that an unbeliever is incapable of. And so, and of, and of course, the righteous deeds that we do outside of Christ, outside of faith, as unbelievers, thinking that we're somehow earning our righteousness, Isaiah tells us that this is like filthy rags. There's no value in that whatsoever. It doesn't actually please God because it's, it's an attempt to be righteous apart from the righteousness that God gives in Christ. And there is no such thing as a righteousness apart from Christ. So therefore, those who are in Christ uh, uh, bring with, uh, uh, I should say, uh, are given this, this, this life, this new life. And not only that, but as he will say at the end of the passage we hopefully will get through today, uh, this ultimately even results in a change physically uh, in accordance with that new life. So not only that, but we also have peace, which not only speaks of the idea of tranquility, but it speaks of being in harmony with something, or in this case, with someone. So we have life and peace in Christ, because of Christ, and therefore with Christ. And so we're at peace with God. We have life given from God. And this is all because we are now spiritually minded as a result of being born again by faith in the finished work of Christ. If I could just try to put that into a nutshell. 
Um, verse 7, because the carnal mind is at enmity against God. Again, the fleshly mind is uh, at enmity against God, or it is in, in conflict against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. It doesn't mean that they're not still under this idea of the righteousness of God judging them, but they don't submit to it. They don't attach themselves to the idea of walking in righteousness or anything like that because they are carnally minded. We can, Therefore, as unbelievers, they are not able to be uh, under the law of God, under the spirit of God, under any of these things regarding his righteousness. They will be judged according to what they are in rebellion against God and this kind of thing. In practical terms, though, they're not walking according to the law. They can't. They're not, they're not spiritually minded in any way where they would seek to live in a righteous way. Uh, let me just interject here again, by the way. I'm, I'm using law and grace a lot, and I'm sort of, I don't want to make it sound like I'm intermingling them in terms of salvation. But in terms of what a, a believer looks like, a believer lives a life that by and large, the overarching characteristic of a, of a believer outwardly in terms of expression is one of a life that pleases God. Um, when Jesus was once asked, what is the greatest commandment? Uh, now, of course, the, uh, the expert in the law who is asking this question would be fully aware that there are, there are in, the, in the law of Moses, there are 613 commandments. Uh, we think of the Ten Commandments as kind of the, the dominant, you know, this is what the Ten Commandments and this is what the law is. But the law was much larger than the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments that God gave Moses that we see are just part of the overall law. Uh, and so when he asked Jesus, which is the greatest, um, Jesus actually answered his question by not pointing to a single commandment, but instead he summed up all of the commandments essentially into two. He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, this is the greatest commandment, but the second is like it, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And upon these two, the entire law rests. In other words, he has summarized the point of all of the law in these two laws, if you will, that ultimately give us instruction. Now, how do we know how to define those things? How do we know that we're loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? How do we know that we're loving our neighbors ourselves? Is it just that we feel like we are? No, there is concrete uh, scripture. There is the law that is given to help us understand what a righteous life does in fact look like. And this is something that we don't work toward achieving to earn our points with God, but rather this is something that the Holy Spirit works out in us as we are continually set apart for him. Again, the more we talk about this, the more we begin to recognize why a non-believer cannot be in that place because they have rejected what is offered to them and they've not received it by faith, but instead the best they can do is try and just live up to these things, feeling like they're earning something before God when in fact they're not. And so uh, when I talk about the law in this context, I'm not talking about it as a means of salvation. Uh, I'm talking about it as, uh, as a way to recognize if, in fact, there is a holiness that is being lived out. Um, and so the law gives us kind of a, a baseline sense, uh, and that's probably way understating it, but it gives us a, a, an ability to understand what a life set apart to God can look like. Uh, again, we're not going to commit adultery. We're not going to steal. We're not going to lie. We are going to love the Lord our God with all, heart, mind, all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and everything. This, uh, 100% of the time? No, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, John would speak to this idea in his first epistle, the idea that we do still fall short. But 
the picture is one of a consistent walk with God that is reflected through a life of holiness. Uh, This is why Peter would talk about that very thing. Since we're looking forward to the things, uh, the the, the final things that God is going to bring about coming to pass, the encouragement, therefore, is then to live a holy life in an expectation of that. And so it's just, again, the natural outworking of a believer. Um, Verse 8, so then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Uh, basically, I, I probably could have saved 10 minutes by just reading that verse instead of spending time talking about it. But anyway, but that's the simple summation of that truth. Now, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Again, if the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in you, if you're not His, you can't please Him. Uh, if you're in the flesh, you can't please Him. But if you're in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, then you are now in the Spirit. You're not in the flesh. We do battle against the old nature, but no longer are we really in that place, positionally for sure, and through the process of sanctification where the Holy Spirit continues to work in us, we become less and less and less attached to the flesh as we grow in Christ and much more walking in the Spirit. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Again, if you're in the flesh, you can't please God. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, then you're not his. Uh, as the old expression goes, you're a saint or you ain't. It's just there's, there's really no in-between on that. Now, verse 10, looks like we may actually get through verse 11 here. So, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Again, sort of putting a cap on that whole discussion of who we are now married to. Are we still married to the old spouse or has that spouse died and now we are free and uh, to marry and now have married this new spouse, the idea of grace. Um, And so um, verse 11 now. Verse 11 now, Paul begins to talk about one of the physical outworkings of this reality, Uh, not just behaviorally, but something even more. And so in verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Uh, sometime back, we had a question on a Sunday morning. Uh, sometimes on Sunday mornings, uh, if, uh, uh, if I don't go too long, we'll leave a little time at the end and, uh, and for questions. And uh, somebody asked a question uh, a few weeks ago about uh, the idea of, uh, of our glorified bodies. Will we still wrestle with sin in our glorified bodies? I think verse 11 here is intended to help us understand that our glorified bodies put an end to that once and for all. Um, when we, and I wish I had thought of that when I was answering the question, I, I, uh, I, I didn't reference the passage. And I wish I had now in retrospect, but, but the passage here comes at the end of a discussion having to do with being in the flesh or being in the spirit. And Paul is talking about how positionally we are, uh, no longer in the flesh, but we are in the spirit, even though the truth of the matter is, is that we are still living in these bodies that are made of flesh, but now we have the spirit within us. Verse 11 kind of takes it now to the next step and says, not only that, but one day you're going to say goodbye to these fleshly bodies as we know them. And in fact, we will be glorified. The, the, the old will be taken up by the new. The, uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58, a passage we've spent lots of time in when we talk about things like the rapture um, or the resurrections and the idea of a glorified body. Well, this is what Paul is alluding to here as well. He says that we will one day put on this glorified body, we will be raised up incorruptible, and there will not even anymore be this 
new nature battling the old nature. The old nature will be done away with entirely. The flesh will literally, as we know it, I mean, our glorified bodies are still us, but they are transformed like his glorious body, Paul would say. And so we will no longer deal with the temptations of the flesh. We will be free of the old nature in that day. Um, this is a glorious thing to look forward to. Uh, as a matter of fact, some of you, if, you know, when, I, when we talked about this on that Sunday morning, you could feel in the room, people are like, oh, thank God, you know? And, and believe me, I know that, and, and I'm sure you do too. The thought of trying to even imagine yourself without a sin nature anymore. I mean, you've, you've experienced as a believer, if you're watching and you're born again, then you have experienced uh, the life of the Spirit in terms of having victory over the temptations of the flesh so often. Wish it was 100% of the time, but at least we have experienced it. We've experienced an intimacy and a closeness with God when we read his word or we pray or we're in worship or we're in fellowship in some way. There's just this beautiful experiencing of the goodness of God in those times that is something that was totally lacking uh, in terms of our in terms of our being outside of Christ before, but to see ourselves completely free of a sin nature is something that we don't have the experience of. We don't know what it's like to be up on the mountain and stay up there. We we come down into the valley of our flesh sometimes, and we find ourselves getting angry with somebody or saying something we don't want to say or doing something we don't want to do. Again, like Paul in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't find the strength to do. The things I don't want to do, those things I find myself doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, verse 11 becomes sort of the triumphant, uh, uh, I mean, the triumphant statement comes right after that, but the triumphant explanation of, of, of what is one day coming is found here in verse 11, where he refers to that point at which we will be raised up uh, with our mortal bodies, ultimately being given life through his spirit who dwells within you. In other words, that which has begun within us now, where the dwelling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit will one day find full expression, even physically in our glorified bodies. It is an absolutely breathtaking truth uh, to look forward to in anticipation. One day we will not have to battle. It's not just the aches and pains, it's not just the aging, but even that sin nature that still from time to time just gets its fingers on us and pulls us in, uh, one day that'll be gone. One day that won't, will just be no more. So praise the Lord. This is absolutely, again, glorious to think about. So, okay, well, we're, uh, we got through what I was hoping to get through today. So next time we're in the book of Romans, we're going to pick it up in verse 12, where Paul uh, goes on and talks about our, our position of sonship uh, in Christ through the Holy Spirit in that, where, we, uh, where in verse 16 he says, uh, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so, um, again, ideas that are connected with what, what he's been kind of building toward and going on with uh, throughout this book, that'll be a wonderful thing for us to spend time on. So once we're in the book of Romans again, we'll do that. So thanks for joining. Glad you could be with us. And, um, and uh, you know, I will tell you, I love, love going through uh, eschatological things. I love uh, talking about what the scriptures say and what current events seem to be pointing toward and all that kind of thing. But there is nothing like just going through the word. There is nothing like just opening up the bread of life that nourishes our souls and systematically making our way through it and considering it 
and 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 seeking to more deeply understand it to understand the overall scope of what the word is teaching from genesis to revelation and putting that together and getting a sense of what god has has said in his fullness to us and this is something that'll be an exercise for us and until we're in eternity and who knows maybe even in eternity somewhat uh we'll we'll know just as we're known and and the fullness of what that means is yet to be seen but uh, but in this on this side of the fl- of the threshold um, we we really can't do better than spending time going through the Word of God. And that's why we always make sure we come back to a verse-by-verse study. Uh, we took a few weeks to answer questions that were coming in. There's still a few left that I haven't gotten to that I will in the days ahead. Uh, and as they come in, we'll try and address those. Because again, this is a discipleship-based podcast. And so my intention is to interact and, and just for my own part, try and do the best I can to try and answer questions when they come in and help people to grow in their faith, even as I'm growing in mine. And um, and uh, with all that, though, again, one of the, really the best thing that we can do to grow in our faith is to pick a book of the Bible, study through it, and then pick another one and study through it and then get another one and study through it. And eventually you're going to get all the way through uh, all of the 66 books in your Bible. And so, um, thanks for coming along for this study. And uh, Father, we do pray that you'd bless our times together. We pray that the study of your word would be a rich thing for us each personally. It's, 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 it's hopefully one as we are collectively going through these things together. But I do pray as well that each one of us, uh, as we spend time in your word each day, would just enjoy and experience the richness of what your word has for us. Help us never to veer far away from just a simple verse-by-verse study of your word. Again, corporately, but also personally. Thank you, Father, for the grace that you show us in saving us and setting us free through the finished work of Christ. Thank you for the daily grace of upholding us um, each day and dusting us off. Even when we have a day where we we fall into sin, we commit, uh, we, we, you know, we, we offend you in some way or we hurt somebody else in that, Father. We thank you that uh, that the the blood of Christ has covered that sin and has even made a way for restoration between uh, between those we offend and ourselves in that too, Father, with, through the humility and, and and the desire to extend the grace that we've experienced ourselves. Father, we thank you for that grace as well. We also thank you for the grace of just giving us your word and giving us such rich, deep insight into who you are. There are many books that we study. There's lots of things we read. We we all may have our libraries full of resources and, and, and books that we like to read, but there is nothing like just going through your word uh, and, and, and just experiencing the Holy Spirit in those moments as, as he helps us connect the dots and to understand more fully uh, what is being said there by, by those servants that you've chosen to write it. Thank you, Lord, for all of this grace. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us and your presence in our lives. We thank you for all of the, 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 the hope in, in what lies ahead. Uh, we are so grateful and so thankful to be your children. Thank you for calling us into your family. And we just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next time.